Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 229. It feels good to be doing good. This week we're discussing season 4, episode 16 of Angel, Players, and series 10, episode 2 of Doctor Who, Smile. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, starting with Angel this time, um, I wanted to start and do the Gwen and Gunn subplot sort of up front because that's kind of the main bulk of the episode, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, And after... I think some pretty arc heavy episodes for a while. Um, this one is definitely a little more standalone and sort of character focused than we've had in, in several episodes, I think. Um, sure. Not to say that there aren't larger character implications, but, um, but it's kind of like a little side mission. Um, and I guess that's kind of guns quote you know the 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 reference of the quote that we pulled for the title of feels good to be doing good is the fact that not that they haven't been doing good but they haven't really been angel investigations for a while you know that when the apocalypse is sort of happening and hellfire is raining from the sky and angelus is loose they kind of just like put the phones straight to voicemail and (laughs) don't really take like a lot of um you know like calls in off the street of like random civilians who are in need of you know paranormal assistance or anything um sure right we're kind of past the helping helping the helpless right or like um which was like all that they did in like the first two seasons right right and then Right, kind well, of now it's like, kind of like they're just helping themselves or helping the city not burn down. Well, not in a selfish way, but in a we have we've we've graduated to a larger plane of yeah. warfare here. I I I think right. Like it's not that they're helping themselves so much as like there's a bigger strategic goal than like the everyday, you know, Stopping, you know, teenagers from being preyed on by, you know, religious fanatics who are demons in disguise kind of thing. Like, like we did that, but like now, now it's like, yeah, real end of the world kind of stuff. Um, Right. So, yeah, like I, I I definitely like, and some of that is. um. Like, yeah, like, how much of that is really, like, it's not that, like, you don't get the sense that the other stuff isn't happening. In fact, if anything, like, with the when the sun was blotted out and stuff, right, like, when the rain of fire started and everything, like, the demons came out of the woodwork. So, if anything, mm-hmm. like, there probably is more of that going on than, um, than used to be, uh. Or at least for a time there was. And now it's kind of like that point of like where they're kind of stalled in that bigger mission. Because even like Angel's like, you know, oh, 
I wish, you know, we were back in the halcyon days of the beast, right? Like, because then they knew kind of what the focus was, right? It was like the big, terrible thing, like going around killing people and, you know, wreaking havoc. Um, Whereas now it is kind of like, not that they've lost their way, but they've lost sight of what it is they're even fighting. Like, they don't even know what at this point. it is. Yeah. And I like I know you want to sort of go through the Gwen and Gun stuff first, but I, I feel like that's where that's where kind of the loss is. I feel like it's like with the beast, at least you knew like you had like like you knew it was part of a bigger thing, but it was also like tangible. You mm-hmm. knew what you were trying to fight, you knew what you were going after. Now you still have this big apocalyptic end of the world thing, but there's nothing to actively like punch. It's very um, like uh, Buffy's situation at the moment. Um, there's some, uh, not to say that they are fighting the same thing, although that's possible, but um, at the very least, there are some parallels to be made between the two situations, I think. Sure. Um, and yeah, and Gunn, I think, is nostalgic for the, the help the helpless stays a little bit. You know, like the... The, the pleasure he takes from of a mission which is kind of focused like it was when fighting the beast, but like even just kind of like smaller and a little more mundane and self-contained. Like, let's just go have a discreet mission where we find, a, you know, a, a vulnerable person in need and sort of help them out. Um, and you can kind of, I think, get a sense of the, fulfillment that that gives him um which you know I w- we're gonna get to like you know the reveal that that all is like not even true later um and Gwen kind of calls out the simplicity of that you know of like well like you know it was easy to kind of sell gun on this because he was sort of hungry for a case that was this sort of straightforward and clear cut and where he could kind of just feel like the hero who saved, what does she say? Like, you know, saving the princess from the yogurt, you know, like kind of a very simple, um, morally uncomplicated little morality play where he can kind of be the hero and not have to be sucked into all the, messy soap opera stuff that he's felt kind of like mired in um mm-hmm. you know both in the sense of all these different love triangles which are sort of confusing everybody's emotional feelings towards each other but also like just the kind of like operatic messiness of like you're saying you know when you're fighting the beast and the master and you don't even know like who they are or what their goal is that, you know, the, the kind of the confusion behind the like larger narrative plot and everything. He's just kind of happy to put that aside and sort of be rid of it for one episode. Yeah. Um, and you know, Gwen, comes and asks for him specifically. Um, Now, she gives a reason later about, like, 
they're, you know, they're, they're trying to get through security for this place. So maybe Angel, if they scan Angel and he, you know, doesn't read as a living human being, that might, you know, set off a few alarms. Um, but also maybe part of it too is this sense of gun being maybe a little bit of an easy sell, you know, like the fact that he is just going to go along with this idea, like he's ready for this kind of escape, um, mm. you know, and, you know, and he does tick those boxes that she was looking for of a guy who's, you know, smooth, who can kind of handle himself in a tight corner, both as like a fighter, but also like, as it turns out, as like a smooth talker and everything. Um, mm -hmm. so maybe there's a little yeah. more to it than just, oh, I need like, you know, a, a living human breathing person who can get into the building with me. Yeah, I think there's some of that for sure. Um, I also wonder to what extent she, though, over or underestimated him like um because i do what like i do think that there's a sense in which she probably was thinking like oh hey like i can probably trick him like mm -hmm. like he's not angel he's the hired muscle and maybe doesn't like i wonder to what extent the conversation at the end if i can skip to the end of their story sure. of it um their conversation at the end of like her telling him like hey you're not actually just like the muscle you have kind of a brain and and like i wonder how much of that is like revelatory to her in this episode like mm -hmm. it's not like she knew this all along when she asked for him mm -hmm. um you know how much of it is maybe her saying like um like where she says, man, have they done a number on you? You really believe this? I'm the muscle crap. Um, kind of implying that like, hey, you're actually pretty smart. And like, like you were saying, like you can think on your feet and, you know, do these things that are more than just like punching people. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I wonder like how much of that is like her discovering that like throughout the episode um because you get the moments of like like she's ready to you know use force and like force their way into um the party and he stops her and like does the whole like jade tiger thing and like reveals it like he stole something from her without her knowing it mm -hmm. like you know, she's supposed to be like the professional thief and everything and didn't even notice that like he had taken this, yeah, you know, item that she liked so much. Um, and we and we never get an explanation why. Like, did he take it thinking he might need it as a way to get in? Or did mm -hmm. he just like take it from her for just like cause. some yeah. other reason? Yeah. Like, yeah, like just because or whatever. Like, we don't actually know like why he took it. Um, it may not have been for the use that he ends up using for it. And then of course she steals it back. So it, it becomes kind of a little game between them. Right. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, like I wonder, I, it's hard to say, like, 
like maybe starting to pull her gloves off was just like a ruse to get him to do something. And she totally thought that he was capable of like talking his way in. But I don't know. I like, I don't get the feeling watching that scene that like she actually is like thinking of it. Like she's thinking of him more as like someone who can help me bust my way to where I need to be mm-hmm. rather than someone who can like be the smooth talker and stuff. So, right. Again, just like I wonder like how much of that is like or or like the fact that like he puts together fairly quickly like what's going on and like stops her in the middle of like cracking the safe mm-hmm. when in reality she thought that he was like either going to get like beat up and taken away or maybe not figure out at all like what was going on and right. and realize it like so there seems to be maybe where she started out you know, seeking him out as sort of a dupe and a, and a musclehead, like by the end of it, she actually maybe has some respect for like who he is and kind of as someone who is more than just the muscle um, mm-hmm. and all of that. So, well, and by extension, it, it asks that question of his status in the larger group. You know, like yeah. the the implication is that they don't see him as more than just the muscle either. And I mean, he doesn't really see himself either, right? Um, you and, know, and like is the, he really he kind satisfied of, by that? What's that? He he and is how, or he like, isn't? Is, is he? I'm asking. Like like right. what's what level of satisfaction does he have about that? Um, right. Right. And yeah, it's, it's a little hard to tell because it's sort of that thing of if he doesn't see himself as capable of more, will he ever articulate the wish to be, you know, have a little bit more respect or more status? Like, even like in the beginning when he's kind of saying, you know, oh, I don't travel much. Like you kind of realize like, has he ever even like been outside LA like probably not you know and like it doesn't really hit you that like just you know his opportunities in life or you know have have just been more limited than other people's you know and you'd think that would be really frustrating or he would feel you know put down by some of these other people who kind of make assumptions about him but then he kind of says, oh, I'm not complaining. You know, I've seen more here than most people traveling the world, which is probably true to a certain extent, um, you know, and then, OK, maybe someday. And so it's like, you know, it's that slightly it's humble, but also a slightly defensive way of kind of saying like, well, I don't have these experiences, but it's OK. I don't really need them anyway like I'm kind of fine and you know he's kind of like you know you know brushing it off as not that big a deal um even though there is a sense of he's clearly thought about this before and maybe would want the opportunity to to see more and do more but just doesn't think it'll happen um I kind of feel like I wonder how much that applies to his sort of status in the group as, you know, is he just the muscle because that's what he's sort of naturally good at? Or that's the the hand that fate sort of 
dealt him because of how he mm. grew up sort of scrapping with vampires um, and he doesn't know anything else or is it that it doesn't occur to him that the others might think of him as having a little more to contribute and so it doesn't occur to him that he might ever question that um, yeah they've done a number on you is the way that Gwen puts it which kind of suggests that like this is something put on him by the others in the group, not something, but I think part of it is self-imposed too. Like he buys into this kind of, even as he's smooth talking his way out of tight situations, um, he's also sort of a little bit bought into his own sort of myth, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I mean, I don't know how much you want to go through like the plot and stuff. Um, I mean, she asked for a gun and we've kind of already sort of conjectured about like the reasons and what, what happens there. Um, she, Gwen sort of develops this whole like, uh, reason, you know, sort of like a complicated, like warring factions one has like kidnapped the daughter of another and like now you know she has to rescue her because it's kind of all her fault and like he totally buys into it like okay there's like these evil people out there and and we need to rescue the girl yeah um but it's all sort of lies for her to steal a piece of mm -hmm. uh military technology um right yeah, I so I don't I don't know how much of the story there you want to go through, but um, any any anything like in all of that that we haven't sort of already covered with kind of his willingness to go along and and see himself as a fighter kind of stuff. I mean, no, I think that's all kind of just the plot sort of scaffolding that you know, you know. I think we kind of covered like the the character motivations behind it. Um, I guess more it's um, getting into like the, the ending of their story after they've stolen Lisa, um, you know, which is the sort of military device, which, um, you know, cures her at least temporarily, at least like while she, you know, she kind of inserts it under her skin and that, you know, is the thing that mm -hmm. allows her to, touch other people um and then things get uh kind of frisky with gun there um, kinda kinda um i mean right yeah yeah and we we don't see all that happens but there's a lot implied yes it's it's implied that they go all the way is kind of what's implied to me like the fact that like it's not just scenes of you know um of them like kissing or anything but there's even discussion of like the fact that she's never not only never had like you know a sexual partner before but like any kind of intimacy presumably because she hasn't had any physical contact yeah. like ever um i i think the i mean the closest we saw to that was like 
you know, that short scene at the beginning of the first episode with her where she's like a kid and like another kid like touches her hand or something, right? And right. he like right. he right. gets blown away or something. Yeah. Right. So the fact that they discuss this and then it, the camera, you know, the scene sort of cuts away with them starting to sort of get intimate and everything. The implication being that um, they're not necessarily stopping anytime soon. So, um, yeah, in the kind of larger Fred and Gun storyline, um, this is quite a big deal. You know, this is I, I, I still harbor my worries about a Ross and Rachel style mix up where um they are broken They're up but not, you know, and um yeah. and they have maybe different ideas as to how officially broken up they are. Um and I'm trying to remember now the exact quote from one of the recent episodes, but weren't they even starting to start to reconcile a little bit, you know, like there were beginnings of conversations of, you know, like we should talk or, you know, maybe, you know, whatever. Um, so the fact that he's, you know, getting this close to somebody else is going to have implications for that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah, very, very potentially. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, what else there is to say about that? But um, you had a interesting production note, which I feel like let's talk about it because um, about Gwen's non-involvement, which I want to bring in here yeah. because it's okay okay so you mentioned she does not appear again in the series um, yeah i when you said i had an interesting production note i couldn't remember what that was i'm like <laughs> what did i say because i it it's kind of a non-production note right yes. like yeah this is it for gwen we don't see her again which is um shocking because to me this is so clearly a setup for if not like you know a long-term permanent character, at least like a storyline in which Gunn, you know, is with this other person. And, and how does that affect his reconciliation with Fred or, you know, it's just very bizarre to me that they would leave it here and then not bring her back. I don't know if there was like a reason for that or if it was just that's, not what they decided to do. Yeah, I I honestly don't know. I I mean we can we can maybe talk about the relative um messiness or its opposite of season four of angel when we get to like the end and are talking about like reflecting back on the season sure but i feel like that this is definitely one of maybe those moments that we can sort of talk about and gwen as a character because I, I like i kind of like that there's like this other 
kind of superhero-ish, kind of dark, like anti-hero kind of person out there. Mm-hmm. That we, I mean, there's a lot that you could potentially explore with Gwen. Yeah. Um, as someone who's sort of, and, and I, I don't even know if anti-hero is right because like she doesn't do much heroic stuff at all anti or otherwise um like like she's definitely just like the thief you know kind of person and and whatever but um kind of has these like odd things and there's other ways that like you could certainly have her team up but yeah like i mean from a a relationship perspective too like for you know with gun and all of that um not that i would ever want her to just be a part of it so that gun can have like a new partner of course not but like sure. i think she's an interesting character on her own right and and could definitely be someone that they you know whose backstory they explored more as you know an ally at least if not part of the actual angel investigations team um especially having just killed off lila um well and who that, may that, or may not come back that thought occurred to me too they killed off Lila and they sent Faith over to Buffy. So all these like, you know, anti-hero female characters that are like recurring sort of supporting roles and everything are getting like, you know, sent away basically. Um, so it, it's funny that they're, so they're all happening one after the other, like right yeah. in a row. Um, I'm trying to think of other, I mean, those are the main ones in in some ways it kind of feels like like i i'm i'm tempted to say all of the like you know recurring sort of supporting roles are getting like it almost feels like they're deliberately like reducing like the cast in a way um that thought just occurred to me now because does three points make a pattern i don't know like that you know there aren't that many characters like this that are like the you show up every so often for a you know string of episodes sort of supporting roles and everything but um it's just funny that they're kind of all happening one after the other um Mm -hmm. and yeah I mean maybe we will have to come back to it at the end when we see the larger story because it's not clear to me what the narrative purpose of that is if it's not i mean we don't have to speculate about the authorial intent necessarily um but like yeah why have all these kind of dangerous and and you know unpredictable sort of villains and sort of allies and then like in a matter of a few episodes sort of get rid of all of them it's kind of an interesting little trend yeah yeah i don't know i mean and then it's just i'm curious to see the next episode because it's hard to imagine how this fits into the gun fred storyline without her showing up like does he does he ever tell anybody like what happened or is this just left completely unmentioned and you're just left to guess like what even happened and if how he feels about it or you know does he kind of come back 
feeling any uh, awkwardness with Fred. I'm just, I'm not asking you to say, I'm just curious how they handle it if the character isn't involved past this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't want to get into how it affects Fred and stuff. Um, the, I, I guess it like just to sort of wrap up the Gwen stuff, I will say we don't see her in the show. Um, in the comic continuations, the character does show up again. Um, I won't say what or how or whatever. I mean, there's not really any point until like <laughs> at some, you know, when we're talking maybe about like at the end of the series and talk about how it gets extended, we can maybe bring her up again if we remember to. Mm -hmm. um, I won't say there's no implications for like Fred and Gun, but yeah, like I don't, I think we can explore those if and when they come up and, and mm -hmm. figure out, yeah, um, so it's not how that like, affects things. So it's not like Gun comes back with a new girlfriend or anything, you know, like, that doesn't seem to be the case. Not, not unless like it's like a junior high girlfriend that like nobody else has met, and she lives in a different town and goes to a different school, kind of thing, right? He like, met her at camp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. No. No. There. It, right. It's not like suddenly he and Gwen are spending all their time together, and Fred gets jealous, and blah blah blah, or something right. like that. Right. No. Um. Yeah, I I can I I will say that's not the case. Yeah. Um, but that's only just because I already told you we don't see Gwen again. Yes. Yeah. Um, um that's fascinating. Yeah, this is a this is a strange season, isn't it? Um, it is. <laughs> um. So yeah, so where to go from there? Where to go from there? So I guess like, I, I kind of wanted to then kind of go over, is there anything else about Gun that we needed to I mean, touch so on just, before we move to Fred? Just the fact that, you know, I mean, we'll get to the ending later, but just noting that he's not back, he doesn't mm -hmm. take part in the ending there. Right. So, um, which we'll talk about here shortly. Yeah. Um, well, so kind of moving from Gunn to Fred, um, there's really just a few scenes, you know, her and Wesley are sort of same time as Gunn is off with Gwen, you know, Wesley and Fred are spending more time together um, doing research you know that's kind of the assignment that angel gives them um mm -hmm. speaking of the awkwardness i think it's um hysterical how consistently it's fred who's the most grossed out by um cordy and connor um like episode after episode of of her just being like 
does everybody like hate this as much as I do? Is anybody else as like bothered by this, you know, as I yeah. am? Um, and she was I, bothered enough by the relationship. And now like with the pregnancy, it's that much worse and everything. Um, I think Fred is funny. definitely serving as kind of the audience stand in yeah, like, yeah. for that whole relationship at this point. Cause mm -hmm. I, Right, they've I they've mean, embraced they've embraced the fact that it's a weird, kind of strange and and unhealthy relationship, like the writers. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and I don't, you know, because I mean, it's always a question of like what's written and produced before like people even see it, right? Like, so I don't even know if by by the time that like, like I don't even know that they could have reacted you know, to audience reception in time to like put words into Fred's mouth. Like they were kind of already there, but certainly like in its effect. Yeah. This is the kind of thing that like, certainly today I would imagine at the time as well, um, yeah. you know, Buffy fans are again, like, <laughs> I think I said this before, but maybe I haven't. So apologies if I don't think this spoils anything. But like, Connor is probably even more hated than Dawn mm -hmm. um, as a character. So like, and Cordy's fairly well beloved by a lot of people. So like, this is definitely not like a match that most of Buffy fandom uh was dying to appreciate see. Yeah. like even people even like even people who dislike don will usually come around and be like okay well yes like i can see how in some instances she might have had some value at some point mm -hmm. nobody says that about connor <laughs> and so like this whole and i mean yeah and then you get into the like oedipal sort of you know, implications and like all of that kind of stuff. Like there's definitely a lot of ick factor yeah. um, going on here. So I, yeah. you know. Well, and it might even be that thing of, even if they hadn't heard audience reaction, the writers sort of getting to that point themselves anyway, because like, sure. you know, I remember them saying that on uh, Lost, like we hated Nikki and Paolo like months before you guys did. Like, you know, they, they're they their own audience, too, and they're reacting to episodes as they're written and shot, saying, oh, you know, that didn't work. But kind of what's interesting is they're not really trying to make it work. They're trying, they're kind of leaning into this idea of it was a mistake and and everybody, it's natural to feel like this well, was probably, like, something that nobody should have really gone there in the first place. I, I don't think we can, I don't think we should assume that the disgust and disappointment elicited by the relationship means that it was a mistake or unforeseen. I would actually argue that, and I think there's evidence that I won't get into for spoilery reasons of that, they're actually trying to make it as icky and gross. Well, especially possible. especially if Cordy hasn't been Cordy, right? Like, if Cordy has been something else all season, then the whole thing 
was like a weird kind of seduction from the from the start so yeah yeah and if that's the working theory then yeah like maybe there's alternative explanations within the story to say like yeah why why did she encourage or Mm -hmm. yeah whatever you know uh stoke uh connor's feelings and intentions yeah um hey we kind of got into cordy and connor let's wrap up fred and wesley really quick and then that was my well, fault. it's hard because they talk about them so yes, much. Yes, they did. And that's why I brought it up. <laughs> um, before we get back into that, though, let's just finish up. Um, they do talk about Cordy and Connor, but then, you know, Wesley at least tries to defend it a little bit, saying when you're alienated, you look for, you know, mm-hmm. love and a connection sort of wherever you can find it. Um, however icky or wrong or improbable it might seem um you know kind of defending himself a little bit about lila um which fred kind of has been sort of a little bit judgmental about um so which well i mean and it just kind of this is this is a, a this is a duh kind of moment but of course the the resonance it has for gun too right like Mm. he's alienated from the group and he's off making this connection with another person um so there's a lot of that going around even though they're all kind of in a group nobody's really funk you know they're not really functioning as a group they're not really feeling very connected to each other and so everybody's kind of making choices and connections that seem that might seem wrong to the to the others yep sure um yeah i think uh i'm well so the other i mean fred's just sort of critical about everyone these days sure like everyone's relationships everybody's Um, disappointing her yeah and i mean i don't know how much we read into that as like is she critical because like her own is falling apart or has fallen apart or is on a break um is she critical just because that's like like, I don't think before now we would have necessarily thought of Fred as an overly critical person. Mm-hmm. But, like, is that maybe just part of her nature of, like, when there's something that she doesn't understand, like, she's just going to say, like, I don't understand this and, like, explain why. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, because there, there were feelings, it seemed like, at least to some degree between Fred and Wesley before she started dating Gunn, even if they weren't like strong, like they were certainly close friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, whether there was like Wesley certainly had the stronger romantic feelings for Fred, you know, um, before all of that. And then like, she kind of chose Gunn and, and 
that is what it is but like it's not like they weren't like always sort of together or not together but always sort of like close in friendship in a way Mm -hmm. um after she came back from Pylea. So I like, like, is there, obviously we know, you know, Wesley's side of it, right. Of my throat was slit and all my friends abandoned me, but like, I wonder how much Fred feels abandoned by Wesley too. And so like, is that part of the strain now kind of between what they're talking about too is it's not even that it was like you know lila you know instead of me as a romantic thing because she was with gun right like like i don't think that's what she's doing but it's i think there is a sense of like like she's seeing that as a sort of betrayal in the same way that wesley feels betrayed by everyone else right um Right, a betrayal of the group as much as her personally, you know, like. Well, yeah, yeah, but I think also her person, like I, I I think there's a personal betrayal there of of that they were friends, and so like Wesley, you know, going after Lila, it's it's sleeping with the enemy, literally, like. And Wesley's kind of like, well. (laughs) We were fighting on opposite sides, but it was the same war, which is kind of a ridiculous, like. Like, is that really your justification? Like, right. Like, is that a meaningful <laughs> distinction? I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Fred's response, but you hated her, didn't, didn't you? And Wesley goes, well, it's not always about holding hands. And it's like, okay. But again, <laughs> there's a, there's like a long ways from like not holding hands to like sleeping with the enemy. Right. Like, like, there's a big middle ground there. Yeah. Um. So, so I think for Fred, and 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 maybe for Fred, it is more simple of like black and white kind of like you know we're on different sides and you don't do that with people on the other side and that kind of thing. Um. So yeah, I don't. I I feel like I'm rambling maybe a little bit, but. But I do, I, I think it goes back to that, um, you know, from Wesley's point of view of, of I had my throat cut and my friends abandoned me, like mm-hmm. things got dark and murky and it's not always necessarily like as cut and dried of a thing as maybe Fred seems to think or from her perspective that maybe it is. And I mean we can go back and forth about, you know, the who betrayed whom and, you know, intentions of like Wesley kidnapping Connor and doing this and that and kind of whatever there. But I think like, I I think it just with Fred goes, goes all back to that idea of like, there's a betrayal there on Wesley's part. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and it's not just like the Connor stuff, but that Lila like is part of that longer term betrayal and like not being part of the group. And actually I, I didn't, I haven't, I wasn't really thinking about this before, but like going back to um, kind of what we said um, about like the situation of, you know, the beast and apocalypse and all of that was like 
why Wesley was sort of brought back into the group. Mm-hmm. But now we're in that murky state of not really knowing what's coming next. The beast is defeated, but like we still don't know who the big bad is. And, or at least, you know, until maybe the end of the episode, at least when we start to get a hint that of who it could be. Um, and so, like, is there, so, uh, sorry, I kind of lost thread of where I was going. Like, we don't, so we're in this situation of not, not knowing who, like, the big bad is. We've defeated the beast. Wesley was originally brought in to, like, stop the apocalypse. And, like, for now, at least, the apocalypse has stopped. So mm-hmm. is that, like, is Wesley part of the group now? Or is he, like, like, I mean, he still has his apartment, right? I mean, we saw that because, like, mm-hmm. he took Faith to it and, like, she had a shower there and all of that. Like, like it's not like he's living at the hotel with them. Yeah. Um, and it's not like he's been sort of formally invited, like, on a permanent basis to rejoin the team. He's just kind of, like, still there in, like, research mode to, like, help out and so like i wonder it too if if some of what fred's feeling is just sort of that insecurity or unsureness about what wesley's status is and like he like he also may be feeling that like he's not mm-hmm. necessarily real clear on his own status so i wonder like how much of it how much of that is playing into it um as as like subtext that doesn't come out in any of the actual conversation here. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah. Well, and and it's brought up too when Angel kind of says, "I'm sorry for your loss and everything." The fact that even he's, you know, even awkward and you know, kind of basic as it might be, he's reaching out to Wesley as part of the group again. You know, it's not just like okay mm-hmm. the. The, the beast is defeated and we're not in immediate crisis. So get out, you know, he's not being kind of sent back into exile right away. So he, there is a kind of tentative piece, you know, or, or truce that he's allowed to sort of be here and working with the team and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and was kind of acting as leader while Angelus was around too. And the others were accepting him as that even gun. Um, so I think the implication being that they do kind of, they're starting to accept him back into the group again. Right. But, but only like sort of tacitly, not explicitly and not like, you know, there were no, like, there's no W9s being signed to like rehire him or anything like Well, and, and for the work that he does for the information he can provide and the research, not as a friend, really. Um, although nobody's acting too friendly these days anyway. So I'm not sure even how much that leaves him that on the outs, like there is a kind of, you know, a little bit of a breaking down of the kind of companionship and camaraderie that they sort of used to have i think Mm -hmm. um 
So I don't even know that that really sets him that far apart. They're all yeah. just kind of doing their jobs at this point. Um, yep. Anything else about Fred and Wesley before we move over to uh, the Cordy side of things? Uh, no. I think, I think we can go on. Um, so she reveals her pregnancy. Uh, you pointed out last time that um, I sort of made the assumption that she was sort of revealing her kind of villainy too, which isn't the case, at least not till the end of the episode. Um, so and, she just and, kind of and comes not down. intentionally even then. Yes. Um, well, she doesn't reveal it. It it you know, seems to be revealed by the end. It's discovered. Yes. yes. Um, so, no. So she was just sort of coming down and showing, I guess, maybe figuring she wasn't going to be able to hide it too much longer anyway, so she might as well sort of make a big sort of, you know, dramatic reveal out of it while she still has the opportunity. Um, and kind of, you know does a little song and dance about how everything's been, you know, very chaotic and dangerous and dramatic and everything. And she was just sort of hiding to protect herself and the pregnancy and everything. Um, it wasn't that she was ashamed or anything. Um, mm -hmm. Which is kind of weird. I don't know. I Given the ending... I wonder how much any of this is very believable, you know, kind of what she says. Um, like the kind of very kind of thin excuses that she gives and the fact that like, yeah, would Cordy really like hide away for that long with this like, you know, ever increasing pregnancy? Um, I don't know. Like it's, it does seem a bit out of character for her. And so it seems like everybody kind of just accepts it. But by the end of the episode, I think maybe even here, they're starting to get a little, you know, confused about why would Cordy be behaving this way? Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah. And I mean, you even get Connor questioning Cordy in here. Yes, right. Right, like, like, right. right. Why would you tell me to do all these things? And even Connor, who's eager to stake Angelus if the moment should arrive, and and he has a righteous cause, um, says like, like, dude, you sent me down to the basement with a stake. Like that yeah. was kind of messed up. <laughs> um. Yeah, and even Connor, who's like the most self-deluded character in the entire story, like, <laughs> like sees through the BS, yeah. like into something that like, he doesn't actually want to believe. Like, right. Like of all the things that he wants to believe or not believe, Cordy, Cordy's fallacy is like probably the least likely thing for him to believe mm -hmm. um, out of anything. And yet like, even he's like there's questioning some holes her, here. You yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, like 
like there's some pretty big plot holes like it's like the hardest core marvel fan you know saying okay maybe that movie didn't make a lot of sense you know mm-hmm. for i don't pick a movie pick a marvel movie right <laughs> i know you i know you're not a fan so oh, there's like, so many um but uh yeah no it it's like he when he starts questioning then you know something's really really going down right mm-hmm. at this point um so my question becomes like i noted earlier that gun wasn't at the end connor's not at the end either though mm-hmm. we don't see him stepping out of the shadows like angel and fred right. and wesley do so um kind of my question is where do we where do we get um where do we get what what's the sorry my dog is like pestering me here <laughs> um like with connor <laughs> stop go go lay down she thinks i'm playing and i'm trying to push her away um it's just encouraging her right exactly um what was i saying um connor doesn't come out of the shadows with the rest of them right so one of my questions here is like you get connor kind of questioning cordy and um you know asking like why did why did you say all this stuff and try to get me to do things um but at the same time like he doesn't go to angel or anyone Mm -hmm. um and so i guess my my question is like is he is he part of it like is he part of the conspiracy is he Mm -hmm. um is he sharing what he thinks with angel and them and like that's what helps sort of lead to their suspicion. Um, like, I don't know. What What are your thoughts there? Like, what, what do you think makes them suspect her? Um, what makes them suspect her? I don't know. I mean, like, I, I feel like... like... Does, does it come out of the blue that they, like, suddenly, like, entrap her? Well... No, because we have this weird pregnancy that she's not been telling them about. And and the fact that her, the fact that she didn't tell them and her kind of excuses for why not seem very thin. Um, and so I think it's kind of a thing of let's, you know, kind of use the fact that Lauren hasn't been getting a reading off of her as a situation to kind of see if like if if we have Lauren go off to do his ritual Mm -hmm. let's just see if she shows up you know and Mm -hmm. the fact and 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 if she does which is what she does then we take that as an indication that there's something she's hiding something more going on um 
And I kind of think the fact that she has this weird supernatural pregnancy and Lauren doesn't have any reading of what it is, is reason enough to be a little bit suspicious. I don't necessarily even think that they're concluding right up front, like, oh, she's going to be the big bad. It's more of a, like, let's just kind of set this little scenario in motion and see how she behaves. Um, and if she behaves in a sneaky way, then we have cause to think that there's something more going on. Um, so I don't get the sense that Connor went and discussed this with Angel necessarily. I could be wrong. Um, I kind of think yeah, he, I, I don't he either. does like have I, these, he does have I, these suspicions, but then she kind of glosses over them with, you know, everything works out, which means that it, I won't ask you to do anything that doesn't have a good reason. And you just have to trust that. And that's kind of enough for him to sort of dry swallow it. Um, so yeah. yeah, I don't think I don't think he's like part of the conspiracy necessarily. I mean, I, although I think yeah. I think he would be there if he was. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I agree with you there. Um, but then, like, what happens to those suspicions? Like, like, do you think she can? Like, is is what she says convincing to him? I mean, it's not convincing to us, but then again, yeah, I think I it's, did. It might be convincing enough in the moment, but if if he realizes that everyone else is suspicious and thinks that this is really bizarre, that might be enough to kind of make him realize, like, oh, these excuses are actually, like, not good at all. Um, but when you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody, it's a lot easier to sort of be manipulated, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think he's got this uh, this sense of responsibility, too, for the baby. Um, you know, yeah. like this this sense of obligation to work with Cordy and kind of do what she tells him to because he doesn't really know what he's doing as a parent. And so there's a kind of like sense that he'll defer to Cordy in any, you know, any times where they're sort of in conflict about what's the right thing to do. If she contradicts him, he'll just kind of like, you know, ignore any misgivings and just sort of go along with it. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's where she's just, you know, an older, wiser person, you know, who's like, it's going to be easy to sort of, even though we can see that whatever Cordy is, is like not very good at the lying and making stories up. Connor's just going to be very easy to strong arm. Sure. So, I mean, on the other hand, there's the conversation between Cordy and Angel. Mm -hmm. Um, which, as we know, Angel is a little more cunning and less uh, gullible. 
Yeah. At, at least a little less gullible than Connor. Yes. Um, and so there, so do you think that um, there, there's that great little moment of like, Cordy, I'm his master. Mm-hmm. I'm his all powerful master. <laughs> like, and then goes into like a hypothetical, right? Of like, if I were the master, like, this is what I would do kind of thing. Um, and uh, but she's been saying things like that all along, like little little you know, references that only she'll get, you know um, you know, I can't think of I'm not going to be able sure. to think of the quotes off of but there's like little senses of where she's sort of toying with them and um, making little jokes about, you know um, that only she'll understand, or at least she thinks that only she's going to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like, you get Angel's responses of, like, basically saying, like, you know, this evil genius is deluded and demented. Um, he spoke to me in these cheesy self in this cheesy self important voice. Uh, I bet he doesn't even have a master plan. So do you think at that point, Angel, do you think he's baiting her? Like, do you think he thinks that he thinks there's something else going on there? Um, or, or do you think he's just sort of legitimately like, you know, expressing his theories to Cordy who, you know, um... like he has done a number of other times, you know, like with other things. To what extent do you think Angel is being conniving or duplicitous there? I didn't, when I was watching it, I didn't read that as him baiting her necessarily, but kind of more in talking through it now and kind of saying that she kind of tips her hand pretty early that, you know, she's not sharing everything and and keeping things secret, then that kind of makes me feel like maybe he is sort of laying the groundwork a little bit um, and trying to manipulate her into making a mistake. Um, So yeah, but when I was watching it, I didn't necessarily take it as anything other than just his honest assessment of the of the beast masters sort of goofiness. Um, you know, which is like, it's, this is an interesting character because for a kind of big, bad supervillain, it is making a lot of mistakes. Um, and the fact that like Cordy gets caught at the end is kind of only further proof of that, of like, it's really not very competent, um, at, pretending to be her and like, you know, kind of not making the right moves all the time. So, um, Hmm. you know, like he's kind of making fun of its sort of ineptitudes as a, as a bad guy, but also by making fun of it, he's also causing it to make more mistakes because like now, you know, ego is involved and, you know, it it wants to be the master villain, even if it's like not very good at it, really. 
So I don't know. And hey, we were just having this discussion of there's nothing wrong with making it up as you go along, right? Um, <laughs> sure. Certain, certain, so like, I guess that remains to be seen. The truth of the statement about is this villain, you know, working with a master plan or just completely winging it? Um, I guess we'll sort of have to wait and find out. Um, but yeah, so, so she does, I mean, intentionally or not, she does take the bait and, you know, sneaks up on Lorne, uh, and everybody else is waiting. And, um, you know, little moment with the magic eight ball. So I don't know if this is supposed to be clear to me. Was Lorne's ritual ever a real thing? Or is this purely a theatrical scenario to get... Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought, you know. So he's basing, like, kind of joking, but basing the the, the final decision on the magic eight ball in the end. That's the kind of way of saying, like, he can't necessarily read her now any better than he could an hour ago. Um, this was just a little setup to get her to see if like she would take the bait. Yeah, I, I do feel like they they kind of half Lauren's whole um, you know in a, inability to read Cordy and stuff is kind of like only ever half explained. Like, well, as it, was it's his never, inability it's never, to read Angelus too. Yeah, but how much of that is? Yes, you're right. But it makes you wonder, like, how much of that is like Cordy affecting him? So, like, it's it's not like that's the thing. I guess that's where I'm going with this. It's never. It's like it's never really clear what mechanism is causing right. Lorne to be like off here, and that's why I wasn't a hundred percent clear because I thought like it could be that something is affecting his powers, or it could just be that this these particular scenarios are blocking his ability to read. So. Right. In any case, it's it's enough that it tricks her into thinking that, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah. we can, the the fact that he has a magic eight ball, like, I think is to me a pretty clear indicator that, like, this is planned. Yeah. And, like, it's planned from the beginning. Like, he brings up, like, Wanda, this demon we've never heard of, like, Angel sent him to, and she turns out to be delightful and helpful, and all of this. Like, there probably isn't even a Wanda, right? Like, it's probably just like Lauren and Angel had a side conversation at some point where we're like, "Hey, pretend this, and we're gonna like do this setup thing to like see if we can draw out." Mm -hmm. Maybe it wasn't even Cordy they were trying to draw out initially, although that's who it turns out to be, or maybe like you. You said before, like, maybe it was like 
we're just going to do this thing and see how Cordy reacts to it and, you know, see what's going on. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely think we're meant to see this as like they were doing a setup. Was it specifically for Cordy? Was it like for her, but not necessarily being sure of like how she would react and stuff. Like we could probably talk another 20 minutes about those, but let's not. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I definitely think we, we're to look at that as a, uh, a planned, you know, thing. And, and yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, anything else that we didn't hit before we switch over to Doctor Who? No, I think we're good. Um, bye, Gwen. So long, and thanks for all the electricity. All the fish. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're we're gonna move on now. Um, we'll we'll be back with some more Angel though next week. So it's not like we're going too far from the story. Um, yeah. But Doctor Who. Smile. Mm-hmm. Um, our second episode with Bill. Mm-hmm. And I I wanted to um, kind of get into, uh, to start kind of the interactions between Bill and the Doctor as like a specifically student um, you know, like a, a student tutor relationship. Cause I, I feel like this is, um, this is definitely something where like, it's kind of a new companion relationship. Now, I mean, well, new, at least as far as like we've seen in the new series, mm-hmm. I guess, um, without going back to classic who, like, I can't say for sure. Uh, back then, but even just like, insofar as like who she is and how she meets the doctor. I mean, we talked a bit before about her being, you know, like someone who works at the university, but isn't a student um, and obviously not a faculty member or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, She just works kind of in the mess hall, um, but clearly like wants to be a student and at least enjoys learning from her from him anyway um and so they set up sort of this like individual tutorship thing um and we see like the papers that she's handing in and stuff so like it doesn't even like start just here but we don't have anyone else who's either like a student or like even sort of functions as a student with the doctor Hmm. before any of the companions. Um, Even thinking of those who might be like the right age or like close to the right age. um, I mean, like Rose, she worked in a department store or something, right? Like she wasn't, Hmm. she either was she, she was 19, right? When we first see her and like, and like, but she's not, if she's going to school, like it's never really like stated as such. And like her. Yeah. And I'm sure she's not role role as like a student or whatever is not made a big deal of if that's the case. Yeah. Um, And, and of course, like 
she, you know, becomes more of a romantic uh, sort of companion, um, which is fine. Um, mm-hmm. When you get to like Martha, um, she's a resident, but I think has finished her schooling at that point. Like, right? Like, isn't she like a resident at a hospital? Yeah, like not... she talks of herself as a medical student, but but she's definitely oh, okay. like a higher. Yeah, like she's right close like, to and... the end of her training period right. yeah and so again like but like with her relationship with the doctor it's it's never about like him now so i want to be careful because like obviously every companion like learns stuff and you know ask questions and like there are things you could point to to say well students do these things and these people did these things but like it's not sort of the primary relationship um you know for Martha or Donna or Amy or any, you know, anyone else, like Mm -hmm. it's not kind of their role and it's not, you know, the doctor's role to kind of be their tutor. And so I think what we see here is that there very much is that role. And so it's, this is like, okay, let's go on a field trip, right? Like, and let's see what we can learn about, you know, human civilization in the future and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And so I think, I think some of the interact. I think that informs some of the interactions that we have. So like, um, it's not just like, so like the doctor says, you know, tells her up front, like, make your choice. And she's like, well, what choice, you know, past or future. And she tells them the future. And then it's like, okay, I feel like with other companions, they're like, all right, future it is. And like, here, let's go. But here, he's almost sort of like drawing out like more like, like why, why do you want to go to the future? Well, why do you think I want to see if it's happy? And like, I mean, I get that that from a writing perspective, that line is like, Oh, okay. Well it's ironic. Cause we're going to go see exactly how happy the future actually is. And, right, right. and so, you know, there's kind of a wink wink there, but um, I also, I, I don't know. I just feel like there's a bunch of like little interactions like that, where, where you get like the doctor more, doing the sort of professorial kind of thing of like drawing out the answer and trying to get Bill to think about what, what's going on Um, from, and from her perspective, it's a lot of the questions that you might just dismiss as sort of the companion questions, but, but I, even if they're similar questions of like what other companions would ask, like there's very much that, that thing of, like she's actually she is here to learn. It's not just like Rose, I wanna jump in the TARDIS and go see the universe on mm-hmm. an adventure kind of thing. Like this is like, no, no, I'm I'm here like this is part of my, you know, tutelage and you know, right. I'm getting an education by doing this and so I'm gonna like kind of make the most out of it. And that's not to say it's not fun and exciting and, you know, all of those things, which, you know, learning should be, but um there's more of that sort of inquisitive student attitude than just sort of like this the standard inquisitiveness of like the normal companion um right. yeah the, the the other example i wanted to point to and, and we won't go into it detail right now because it's kind of near the end there is um when the doctor is sort of explaining like what went wrong with the Vardy, you know people and so he's he's talking about um 
like, you know, they learn, they try to be good servants. So they expand the definition of happiness until, and then like, he kind of pauses and lets Bill finish. And he does that like four times in that whole sequence of like, mm. pauses and lets her finish and like answer, like to get her like into the conversation and thinking and, and coming up with those conclusions that he's either already come up with or is in the process himself of coming up with as well. Mm. And sort of, is including her in that way that again, like, I don't want to say that like no companion has ever been done in, but seems like a more deliberate sort of thing um, that's going on here. Um, So I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. That was sort of the thing I was thinking of as I was like, because we don't really get in the last episode. It's kind of like jumping into the fairy story you know tardis like there's something chasing us and so like we're gonna quick introduce you to the world and then go on like an adventure kind of to escape this thing right now this is more like the relationship is kind of like we've defined it as you know it's student and tutor and so like now we're seeing like what exactly that means and how it's going to play out Right. And how can we apply that into these sort of fantastic settings, the same kind of conversations that they might have in his sort of, right. you know, uh, office rooms and everything. Well, um, and, and sorry. So I was just going to say like, yeah, you like, you might imagine like in a classroom or like, yeah, even in an office or whatever, like a student and a teacher saying like, okay, let's do like a thought experiment. Like, like what if, what if we were, 10,000 years into the future and there was this civilization where you know like the machinery was going awry well like we don't have to do a thought experiment we can actually go visit such such a colony and see like what happens when these things go awry and and kind of figure out what are the moral and ethical and practical and you know all of the different resolutions that might need to be you know Mm -hmm. um we don't have to think about like well what would happen if if you know machines suddenly became sentient like and like would it be moral and ethical to treat them you know just like machines and destroy them all if they suddenly turned on us or would we have to figure out some other way to deal with them like well let's go see what exactly that would you know what that experience would be like Mm -hmm. um so in place of like the thought experiments you get that like let's go on a field trip type of thing even if we you know the doctor didn't know that that was going to happen necessarily when they went there um that's what it sort of turns into yeah and that kind of reminds me of you know one of my favorite moments um more just for the delivery than anything else is her saying thanks for bringing me this is a great day out um just the way that, you know, she delivers that line of, like, he just took her to, like, on a regular field trip. You know, like, that's literally what you'd say if, like, he took her to, the, like, the aquarium. Like, this is, like, this is a great day out. But, like, just applied into this, mm. you know, completely sort of bonkers, futuristic setting. But the sentiment is the same as it would be in, you know a normal impressive field trip type setting. Um, 
Yeah. So yeah, I definitely get what you're saying about her. It, it doesn't invent a new aspect of the doctor companion relationship, but it kind of formalizes it in a way. Like it takes something that's inherently kind of like it, it has shades of, of student teacher and kind of makes like a, a, an official declared relationship out of it of like, we're going to actually like, you know, acknowledge that this is our relationship and approach things from that perspective rather than letting it sort of naturally develop over time as companions sort of become like, you know, he becomes like a mentor to them or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, that's more kind of where he and Bill are coming from up front. Um, you know, and, and even her line about, you know, like she's smiling again as she does when she's, you know, confronted with new things. Um, and yep. you know, uh, do you know why you're an awesome tutor? Just like this idea of like, all he's doing is really fulfilling his, you know, like job, you know, responsibilities, but just to like a way better level than anybody else. Um, so, you know, and, and I guess that kind of affects how she sees the traveling. Like, you know, it takes her a while to kind of catch on to the, the idea that he might, you know, be this kind of helpline, you know, that he might go from mm -hmm. place to place sort of, helping out and sort of fixing, you know, troubled situations and everything. Sure. <clears throat> because she's kind of seeing it as more, I guess, maybe what in the classic series it was originally supposed to be of he's more of an observer. He's a, a you know, like you would be if you were a history professor who could travel in time. Like we're here to mm. travel through you know, the universe and sort of learn what we can about the past and the future and human civilization and everything. Um, it doesn't take it like, it takes her a while to realize, Oh, that's not generally how, what he does. Like he, right. he kind of, you know, puts her back in the TARDIS and then says, ah, I'm here to blow it all up. You know, like, that's, like, you know, that's not really the way that he's kind of been presenting it to her, because that's not the kind of traditional, mm. you know, tutor role. Um, but, yeah, no, it does make for a kind of unique dynamic, I think. Um, and I, I, I wish that this episode would delve into these aspects a little bit more, but even just the kind of various philosophical problems that it sort of presents over the course of the episode of, you know, um, what is the, what is the secret to human happiness and can you affect your own mood by looking at it? And, you know, what the, this question of, uh, is, you know, grief problematic, you know, is it a thing to be sort of, 
exterminated and, and erased or is it like a, a natural and positive part of being human like sure it does kind of present like philosophical sort of problems that I think are kind of in keeping with Bill's sort of education I guess right um so yeah I don't I mean I don't know, kind of similar to the Angel episode, like how much the plot we actually need to go through. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like we've covered a lot of it already, like, because a lot of it is that sort of like presenting you with like questions about, you know, how much, how much is like our happiness, like really you know, do we need to modulate or, or control or, or whatever? Um, yeah. I mean, so long story short, it's like, you've got this colony. Um, the initial people who were like kind of sent there, I, I'm not clear, like, were, did the, like, the people who were sent there sort of ahead of everyone else, did they build these robots to help out? Or were these like sent along with them or, or, or whatever? I don't know if we get a real clear. It kind of seems to me like they were sent with them, but I don't know if we ever find out for sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but basically, I mean, what starts out is like, a monitoring mechanism i guess of like like a you know a sort of how's my driving sticker on the back of a truck <laughs> like turns into you know <laughs> dystopia the, if if they're if they're not if they're not doing well then that's and somehow that's like the fault of the um individual like rather than the machine <laughs> um yeah, I feel so there's like I kept trying to think cuz like I feel like I've seen something like this before like like the way you know the way to make everyone happy right is to kill everyone right or um I feel like that's uh I've seen that sort of like broad plot before and I'm mm -hmm. trying to remember like where where that would have been um And it, it's escaping me. Um, anyway, yeah, but that's basically what it is, right? It's, oh, you know, if you're not happy, then, you know, the way to, like, resolve your displeasure or sadness or whatever is to kill you because then, you know. Right, then you, you won't have any complaints. You, you can't be not happy if you're dead. Right. Um, you're not necessarily happy. You're just not not happy. Right. Um. Yeah, and right. so especially obviously, if, especially if confronted with a problem that they can't fix, right? Right. Like, well, and like if it's if it's something that they if it's a problem with the robots, then presumably they would address whatever the the issue is. But if it's something like grief, you know, that's the thing that they don't have a solution for, and so therein lies the confusion and and like well if we don't if we can't fix this problem then yes like better better dead than sad and and of course this is i mean if you want to like comment on 
I, I don't know if this is even a proper phrase or idea, but like emoji culture, like yeah. this is the problem with emojis, right? Like that you, that it's, it's very hard to, to communicate complex mm. emotion or idea with a single emoji, yeah. which is all they have. Like you can sort of get by with maybe a series of emojis. Um, or emoji, I guess, isn't the plural also the same thing? But um, emoji, <laughs> like yeah, like maybe you could get, maybe you could express something with like a series, and so you see, like, of course, sort of the extreme of that is right, like you know, uh, describe a movie plot using only emoji, right? And right. you get sort of like the funny strings of emoji for like you know the Lord of the Rings movie or something. Um, right. Right. And right. And, it's like 50 characters long or something. And like, those are funny, but like, you have to kind of already know the plot and know what is being communicated in order to actually be able to read it and sort of get the humor out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, which is also my response to people who have like the humorous, um, sentences that don't use the oxford comma it's like well those are only humorous because you already know that it's wrong but anyway um we won't get into my thoughts about the oxford comma tonight beyond that um so yeah so like like you can't you know simple frowny face like doesn't tell you what is the reason why you know i'm frowning or you know am sad or whatever um and I think this goes, so you talked about like you wish they had gotten into some of the complex, you know, problems or philosophical or, or psychological even issues that um, could have been interesting maybe to, to dive into a little bit more in this episode. And one of those things that, that I think about is something like depression, where right. the, the permanent solution to a, what is essentially a temporary uh, emotion, um, you know, is, is suicide, right? Like that's, that's the thing is, is a lot of people who commit suicide feel like, you know, the reason that, that they kind of take that ultimate step is, is that they feel like they're never going to feel normal or happy or, or fulfilled or, or whatever it is that, you know, they're feeling bad about. And so, you know, a lot of people who commit suicide, you know, do it for that reason. And, and I'm, so I, I realize that, like, I'm really simplifying that. And I don't mean to, like, say that that's, of course, the only reason or whatever why someone might commit or attempt to commit that. But but I feel like that that's, you know, one of those things that you can talk about is, like, you've got this group of robots or, or whatever. Um feeding off of these very simplistic readings of these emotions and not like recognizing that like the grieving process is actually a natural and necessary and cathartic process for people to go through when somebody dies. And, Mm -hmm. and so when this first person dies, that sort of triggers the response that they come up with, you know, these robots who have never experienced it don't, know how to respond to that and so 
the doctor sort of comment of like, this is, you know, um, what, what's the, where he says it's like the comment where he talks about, you know, the utopia of vacuous teens, right? Like this is a very sort of like teenage response of like, you know, coming across something you don't understand and it's just sort of lashing out. In this case, the lashing out is, you know, homicide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, well, um, and the other, the other thing I think in there that connects to, you know, emoji culture and teen culture is the connection of those things with like social media. And, um, you know, I think there's potentially yeah. something interesting there of, of not only this culture that kind of uses emojis to sort of communicate and regulate itself, but also like it's expected that, that everyone will wear their emotion sort of on their sleeve, you know, and like, you know, or, or collar. Oh yeah. Or back or whatever. Like, you know, <laughs> that you're expected to be projecting yeah. in very simplified form, very clearly what emotion you're experiencing at any given moment. And like that clearly can't communicate the full range of, emotion even for one person even in a single moment of their life let alone like for an entire civilization um but that's the kind of simplistic way of viewing happiness you know which like not at all surprising that social media can be linked to depression at times because you're sort of expected to project a sort of often false sense of happiness and fulfillment and completion to the world around you, you know, because mm -hmm. you look at someone else and you say, well, their life looks pretty good. Why, what's wrong with me? Why don't I feel like that? Now they're probably feeling just as conflicted as you are, but that's not the image that you're projecting. Um, right. And so you get this kind of amplified echo chamber in which we're all just kind of like, pretending to have everything sort of figured out and it leads to a lot of you know anxiety um sure. so I, I think this episode kind of hovers around those ideas i don't know that it really fully gets into them but i think it has enough of the stuff there that it seems to be playing with kind of like I guess this is kind of an extrapolation of that idea of like an entire community based around emoji social media culture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the other thing that thought would have been really cool is I wish they'd done something more with Bill with that because the idea of Bill, who we've established as someone who can't hide her emotion in her face, you know, like she mm. it's doing expressions when she doesn't want it to. Um, that seems like a really dangerous thing in a place like this <laughs> where, you know, you're surrounded by robots that will kill you if you betray your emotions. Um, 
it's it seems like oh well there's the little missed opportunity there like you know yeah. is there a way that they could have made bill particularly susceptible in a play in in this place where some other people mm. are more capable of lying and hiding their emotion and sort of keeping a calm surface even if they're sort of upset underneath and everything um but I don't necessarily get the sense that she's in any more danger than anybody else, really. Sure. Well, and there's, I mean, the other thing is sort of the, well, there's two things. So at least two more things I want to say about the situation, then we can kind of move on. Yeah. One is that, like you mentioned, like the society that is sort of built on this idea, but like, they don't want to be like they didn't start out to be right like the the mechanism was a feedback loop for the robots right like this like again it's like the how am i doing like how's right. my driving sort of aspect of it like that the idea was never like or at least right this is just a quality satisfaction barometer right like it it was never intended to be you know, something where they like took it and then like that was like the basis for like your everyday life. But I also like, I feel like there's like sort of a metaphor there for like social media in general too. Like people, like many people, I can't say nobody because like I actually know people who aren't on social media at all or whatever, but like a lot of people like can't imagine life without social media. And I mean, it's hard to remember like when you couldn't just hop on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And you know, all of that. Um, I mean, I, I do remember it cause I'm old and, you know, went to school in the days before uh, we had all of that, but um, yeah, I, I think just to point out that like, this is, this is certainly among uh, the unintended consequences of that sort of technology, like not realizing that um, having this sort of thing allows, you know, certain reactions and responses that like were never anticipated or never real, you know, really meant to be. Um, I think the, the other thing that I was going to say um, I forget what it was off the top of my head now. I might have to come back to it if I can remember what it was. Um, so yeah, so anyway, so just to say that like, uh, oh, well, so like you were talking about like the expectation of having to have like the certain, you know, sort of thing. Um, you know, like the perfect life and and, you know, always having like these sort of fulfillment. And so like, right. You see like, like Instagram, like the best accounts are like the most beautiful ones, right? Like mm -hmm. they're the ones with like, like the arranged books and, you know, or the really attractive people or like the dogs having fun and like playing in the snow and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, you don't see like the, you know, ugly, you know, kind of like worst parts of life, even like, 
even like those accounts that might like purport to show you that it's like they do it in a beautiful way so you i'm thinking even like the like the humans of new york kind of thing Mm -hmm. it's like you know these are like the ugly normal everyday people but like we're seeing the inner beauty of them kind of thing you know what i mean like even even those accounts are like and i don't like i like those accounts i'm not saying like i don't think they're bad or anything but Mm -hmm. like even those accounts are like not meant to be like this is ugly and bad and whatever i mean maybe there's a out, there's those types of accounts out there like sure because the internet has everything but that's but, not the, but the like those aren't the ones that ones. like yeah yeah and they're not the ones that everyone knows about and yeah um right so you know i guess that that idea of like like always having to fake it and always having to kind of like present the best side of things and like like you mentioned, like Bill isn't able to keep her emotions like different, but like it's also that thing of like, yeah, when she an- encounters something she doesn't know about or, or, you know, whatever, she smiles, right? So, mm-hmm. like, in this whole like sort of scenario, like, she's not necessarily faking the smile, but it's just sort of her natural reaction, like, this is whatever, but that discounts the doctor's reaction, which is like, he's not a smiler, right? He's a, mm-hmm. I encounter something that doesn't make sense and I frown and I worry and I think about it. And it's like, both of those are perfectly fine reactions to this, you know, encountering this thing. Like Bill's like, okay, I there's a thing here I don't get and I'm smiling and happy because it's something I can figure out. I mean, the doctor might not be smiley and and, you know, happy about it, like, but that doesn't mean his reaction is, like, wrong or bad or, like, makes him deserve to, like, be killed, you know? Well, and even if he doesn't physically smile, I think you would say that the doctor reacts positively to challenging and confusing situations. Like, I think in sure. a way that unites so, him with Bill, like he he's not a smiley kind of guy, but it's like he smiles a little bit on the inside of like, here's well, a puzzle but that's to not figure even, out. Like, I, I don't even mean it like that. Like, like yes, I, I, I get what you're saying and I, and I agree. I, what I'm just saying though, is that like, regardless of what he, how he's like feeling or whatever's on the outside, like it's such a superficial thing to say like well because bill's smiling and because the doctor's like frowning Mm -hmm. like that that we need to react these people and i think it i think one of the things that like if we're going back to like the social media metaphor of it like one of the things that people see is like if you're not like always happy and you know presenting these things then it then there's also this perception of like so you know I don't pick pick the topic of the week, right? Whether it's, you know, (laughs) Trump or gun control or, you know, uh, Planned Parenthood or like whatever, you know, of the 500 issues that have come up in the last year, you know, on Facebook or whatever, like, like not that everyone's always posting happy things about that, but like, it's like either it's 100% happy or it's like, you know, completely like, embattled and you know um uh 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 embittered (laughs) i guess you know 
between people who are like otherwise ostensibly friends and like each other and all of these things. So like, like it just becomes, you know, again, because it's like simplistic and whatever, like, you know, you just, you only have these two options and you can't like see the complexities of those things. And, and it also becomes kind of to go back to that point about like the doctor frowns while Bill smiles and like, Yes, like maybe they're both sort of enjoying the the puzzle of it all, mm-hmm. but like they're both perfectly valid responses to the same mm-hmm. situation. Like, like there's not just there's not a one size fits all response to fulfilled, enjoyable, you know, happy with your life kind of thing, um, right. or you know, content, or you know, whatever word you want to use there that. That just be like you don't have to always be smiling to lead like a fulfilling and and decent life. Mm-hmm. Um, part of life is having the range of emotions and having, you know, the experiences that maybe don't always immediately give you happiness, but like maybe lead to a better situation in the long run or teach you something, even though it's painful and hard to get through and all of that. Um, so yeah, I feel like I fumbled around a lot to get there, but that's kind of like where I wanted to go with that. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's good. I think, I think it is playing with some interesting ideas about sort of the, uh, you know, I, I suppose somewhat vacuous aspects of the kind of online, you know, culture, which, you know, is is kind of emblematic of this emoji speak and everything. Sure. Well, but uh, having said all that, like, I agree with you that, like, I wish it explored some of that more. (laughs) Like, because it it does just kind of, like, gloss over a lot of that, uh, perhaps ironically. Um, And... Yeah, we get more of like the like disturbing scenes of like the skulls falling out of, you know, the fertilizer maker or um you know, when we get down into the the big ship and realize that like, oh wow, it's actually full of all these colonists who mm-hmm. haven't woken up yet because they were waiting for things to be set to rights before um they were awakened or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily, I don't think we need to step through all the, cause it's like, okay, yeah, they're, they're going to blow up the ship. The colonists wake up. There's kind of burning for a fight when they realize what's happened. And then the doctor like stops everything and fixes it. Right. So any, any other parts of the plot you want to like talk about at all before we kind of get into the the ending and the or like the more the doctory kind of stuff no i mean this is kind of transitioning to the doctory stuff the only thing with the resolution which jumped out to me this time watching it straight after the pilot is we kind of called out the casual way that he was going to erase Bill's memory in the previous episode and that the kind of like problematic aspects of that given 
you know, experiences with past companions. And so it kind of stuck out to me that like, oh, here we are again. Like he, his solution to the problem here is to like erase somebody's memory, you know, like all of the, yeah. you know, the entire Vardy get reprogrammed essentially. Um, right. So yes, he recognizes their agency and their sentience, but like, are they treated with the same respect as the human colonists? Not quite. Um, so, you know, it just sort of complicates his sort of resolution at the end. Yeah. Well, and so it, it kind of, when I was watching it too, it kind of brought the mind to mind um, the, the whole idea of, um, reparations for slavery it like here in the u.s like there's been there have been calls and, and are still calls um for some kind of reparations to be made and it's like that's basically what he's calling the Vardy in this right is that they were slaves and they're sentient and now you know basically the owners and runners of the city here like but there's also a very convenient like non-complex way of like Oh, let's just, yeah, let's just erase, like, mm -hmm. the fact that, like, they ever were slaves and whatever. And it's like, that doesn't work in, like, mm -hmm. real life. Like, you can't just do that. You can't just, like, erase the history. And I feel like that's one of the whole issues with all of that. It's like, like, I, there is a point in history where you just kind of have to say, like, look, like, you can't change the past. Like, you're never going to change it. And so, you know, what becomes what becomes the right thing. And I think that's, that's where you get the two sides of the issue is like, okay, you, maybe you can't change the past, but like, there's still a way to like compensate, you know, for what happened. And the other side is like, well, no, you can't change the past and really nothing ever could be done to like compensate for that. And so therefore like nothing should be done. And so like, right. it's like, well, can't we like find somewhere in, in the middle to like meet with that kind of thing? Um, and I mean, that can be applied to a lot of different things. I, like there's, you know, things like the Middle East problems and that sort of thing that I feel like is a lot the same way where mm -hmm. um, all, all that to say that that sort of like quick and easy reset button fix is, yeah, very simplistic, but, you know, maybe appropriate for an episode that is you know, a vacuous utopia for teenagers or whatever, <laughs> um, or a utopia for vacuous teenagers or whatever it is. Like maybe, maybe if in an episode where the problems are, you know, s too much simplicity, then the simple, you know, solution is the best. <laughs> mm. um, it at least gets us to the end. Um, so, yeah, the, I mean, the, that was the only other thing with the plot I wanted to make sure to uh oh you know what I do have one more thing given my thesis I can't help but be a little bit happy with the doctors sort of using a fairing tale as a teaching tool. well I was I was just going to bring up the magic haddock so like yeah yeah I'm sorry go ahead like what were you gonna say further or or was that it I mean, that's mostly it. Um, just kind of also noting that um, 
it, it's an interesting kind of adaptation. You know, I was looking at the, you know, other sort of, so the, um, the, the kind of, I guess, type of fairy tale of, of this, of a, a magic fish that grants wishes is a, like a, a, a standard of, you know, fairy tales like that appears in a number of different versions and like in slightly different, differing versions and everything. Sure. Um, it's number five, five, five in the, uh, ATU index in case you want to look it up. Um, but anyway, so this is not like an exact repetition of any one version of it. It's like a different kind of spin on it, which is kind of interesting. They could have just sort of picked, you know, the Grimm's fairy tale and, and sort of repeated that. But, you know, the writer sort of did his own version and he kind of adds like the originals, you know, or the folk versions have this idea of um, the moral against, you know, uh, against like material greed, you know, of kind of wishing for things and kind of letting that carry you away. Um, and some versions have this idea of, you know, be careful what you wish for. Um, you might get it. Um, but then this episode kind of adds this other idea to it of magic haddock, like robots don't think like people. So the doctor kind of uses it as a way to teach like the, the fact, the simple fact that other, you know, alien beings are not going to think of things the way that you do. And so it's more about communication. I guess this is like an argument, like this goes along with our theme of simple versus complex ideas, like in communicating with people, unlike yourself, anticipating that they might see things from a different point of view and having to be careful how you state things and, you know, go out of your way to try to understand how they might conceive of something because, you know, a lot can get lost in translation, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of interesting to me that they didn't just sort of pick a fairy tale and sort of repeat it verbatim. They sort of picked one, adapted and modified it, and then kind of made it work with the theme of what they're trying to say in the episode. Hmm. Um, but I kind of took over. I, Was there something about the magic haddock that you were going to? Just that it yeah. reminded me and, and maybe I don't, I don't know. Um, I hadn't heard the fairy tale before. I don't think, um, or at least if I have, I didn't recognize it as one I had heard before. Um, but it did make me think of the story, the monkey's paw, mm. um, which I feel like has a very, so have you read that? Um, uh, I have, but you'd have to remind me of the details. So something along the lines of like, I don't know if I'm getting the details right, but um, uh, uh, I don't remember the exact order of like what the wishes are, but but basically, 
this monkey paw is supposed to grant like three wishes or whatever. Um, and I like, it's something like, you know, the money to buy their house or pay off their mortgage or something like that. Um, but then it turns out that that money comes from like the couple's son dying overseas or something like, mm-hmm. so then they wish that their son was, you know, come back to life. But of course it, he comes back, but it's like, he's undead, right? Like he's like right. a monstrous, you know, undead thing. So like they use the third wish to undo the previous wishes, basically. Right, right. Um, it, it's, I'm sure it's more haunting and, you know, grisly than that. But um, basically, yeah, that idea of like, you know, you realize that like maybe, maybe you had, uh, a better life than you were mm-hmm. um, wishing for um, and to sort of be content with what you have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, and I, I feel like this, this Dr. Who version is sort of a, a mix between the monkey's paw and, and like the fisherman and his wife, those like, you know, magical fish fairy tales. It's sort of, yeah combines the two. well and that's i i don't i don't know it and it's been a while since i read the monkey's paw so it's possible that i'm conflating them somehow or whatever but like i don't know that i've ever heard the magic fish ones or not either so um it's totally possible that like yeah maybe maybe like the monkey's paw is just like a version of the magic fish was the different, you know, animal or something. Well, <laughs> or like in the in the ATU system, the 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 fish version is under the subheading of, you know, magical donors. So, I think they both kind of broadly yeah. fit under that category of like playing with, you know, animals and supernatural beings that are you know, there to grant you wishes. And very rarely does that go exactly as you think it's going to go. It's sort of the general, sure. that's the general outline that they sort of fall into, I think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, anytime uh, Doctor Who wants to use fairy tales in its episodes, I will uh, be, I'll be there for it. Um, so, yeah. Uh, um, did you want to talk about doctory stuff in the last couple minutes? Yeah. So, right. So the, I, we don't need to spend long here cause, um, whatever, but so, sort of, you know, we talked about sort of like the companion student. Well, well, like villain doctor is like student and uh, tutor. Um, But then there's also like the non-tutory stuff that the doctor is doing, right? Which is kind of like Mm -hmm. we touched on it a little bit, I think, in the previous episode, but not a whole lot. Um, And so you get some questions from Bill um, and some interaction from Nardal. which actually, let's start there, because because you get like one of the best lines um, in the episode is you know Bill, who's that, and the doctor going mom, right? Like Nardal is this 
I it's mean, a nag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whether whether you want to call him matronly or not, um, that's up to you. But there's definitely this, yeah, sense that like he's keeping an eye on the doctor and 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 not just keeping an eye, but keeping him focused and on track. Um, and like, I mean, we've heard from we heard from Bill that the doctor had been at St. Luke's University there for you know, 50 years or whatever it was, right? Like that he had been around a while and maybe maybe that's like, maybe the doctor's starting to get a little bored, right? Mm -hmm. um, maybe not for the first time, but at least like we don't know about those previous times if there were any. So, you know, maybe maybe he's getting antsy and Nardal sort of picking up on this, but um, you get like... Uh, you know, him asking, like, excuse me, just what is the TARDIS doing down here? <laughs> and, and you know, the doctor sort of shrugging him off or trying to explain away, which, of course, like, we know that last episode, the doctor took the TARDIS out and took all those pictures of Bill's mom. So, like, <laughs> it's not like it's the first time that right. he's sort of gone away. And And Bill noticed the... The that the TARDIS had moved, right? Like, it wasn't exactly in the same spot on the rug last time. So, like, it's not the first time maybe the Doctor has... Uh, right, bended the uh, rules. Strayed, yeah. strayed from his mission or whatever. Right. Yeah, however you want to put it. Um, but Bill picks up on it this time. Like, maybe she didn't before. Or at least she, like... Like she knows about the vault because like that's what the the doctor goes and checks and like, oh, is the is the creature coming after the vault and like it appears not to be and so like they move on. Now it's like, oh wait, there's something there's something bigger going on. This isn't just like the doctor is a professor and happens to have this like weird box. Um she starts learning stuff um about the doctor and the box and like all of those sorts of things so mm -hmm. um you know things like he has two hearts <laughs> right like this is suddenly very surprising um to her because uh i guess did she know she did find out last time that he came from a different planet right but like that doesn't necessarily mean that he's that physiologically different like he still looks human so like she might just sort of assume Right. He's human, like maybe an evolved human, you know, down the road or whatever, but. Right. Um, right. And they, yeah. he was sort of cagey about it. I remember that line about, um, are you from space? No, I'm from a planet. Like everybody's from a planet. And, like <laughs> right, he doesn't right. quite say what that means, you know. Right. Um, but here she gets a, a more clear answer to that question of. Oh, he's alien. Like Right. There's actually some alien physiology. Yeah. And and he has high blood pressure. Um, because of the dual hearts. Right. Um, right. And maybe the stress. Well, right. Yeah. Right. He does he confirms the high blood pressure. Right. Like, not necessarily confirms that it's due to the number of hearts that he has. That's true. Right, right. There's that moment of like, do you have really high blood pressure? Like, well, yeah, of course. Really high. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, really high. Um and then, but Bill picks up specifically on Nardal's comment about 
him having made an oath. Uh, little fella said you made an oath. You're not supposed to leave the planet. Okay, I suppose I owe you an explanation, the doctor says. And then it proceeds to give her a non-explanation explanation, right? Like, a long time ago, a thing happened. As a result of the thing, I made a promise. As a result of the promise, I have to stay on Earth. And then she says, guarding a vault. And he confirms that. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, like, not that we get a lot more here, but but that it's, yeah, there's an explanation of something happened. He made a promise. And now he's guarding this vault. Um, but it's okay because like he seems to find like these little moments which contain the entire history and expanse of the universe in which he can go uh, between um, you know saying he'll be upstairs and actually being upstairs he can sort of go on these little jaunts uh, yeah. um, which sort of kind of backfires on him because when he gets back it's not the proper time right like so this is the question of i mean not that he can't get back there at the right time because like theoretically he could you know take a hundred years and then get still get back before the kettle's boiling but Mm -hmm. uh yeah he just uh has to figure out like how to actually get back to that particular moment i guess Right. Um, right. Therein. Which he does not do the at the end. No. <laughs> no. No, naturally. Um, yeah. I don't, I mean, any other thoughts about sort of him and, and the, the sort of like more seasonal arc type stuff? Um, no. I don't think so. Cool. Well, then in that case, we will be back next week with uh, some more Angel and some more Doctor Who. Sounds good. See you then.